You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. I can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston's. Get out a last signal to Earth that we've landed! The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things. And the superior beings are apes. They build the cities. Make the laws. The gods. And control the guns. That hunt a race of lowly terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Pierre Boulle's finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. The world gone insane. An upside-down civilization could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. You did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baffle. It's a man! It's a man! so unpredictable, so shocking. It made the horror which preceded it seem calm and gentle as a summer's night. A great many people worked long and hard to answer the question of what a civilization would be like where the evolutionary process had been reversed and apes were the superior species. Hundreds of technicians and the largest number of makeup artists ever assembled assisted the producers, the writers, the director, and the cast. Dr. Cornelius, Roddy McDowell, Dr. Zira is played by Kim Hunter. Dr. Zayas is portrayed by Maurice Evans. And Nova by Linda Harrison. Now the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. You realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Eventually a kind of living death. Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. Hi everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone and today we have a jam-packed show for you. We got... 
The Making of Planet of the Apes, a new book by Jonathan Rinsler that chronicles the very detailed steps in the development and the production of the original Planet of the Apes film. And we also have posters of the month. This time around, we hit Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the teaser poster for that particular film, and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. This is the movie adaptation poster of the television show. Two different artists, very different styles, great information, all the background stuff that I particularly love finding out about all these posters that are very much classics at this point. So let's begin with Planet of the Apes. Plateau, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. Let's talk about the new, or at least to me, newly read, Making of the Planet of the Apes book. I've had this one for a, for a little bit of time now, and reading a book of this caliber is it's a little bit of a commitment. Reason being is that this is the J.W. Rinsler version of the making of Planet of the Apes. What makes this different than any other book is that this is a certain format that Rinsler has done in the past with Star Wars. If you guys remember, he's done the making of Star Wars, the making of Empire, the making of Return of the Jedi. And these are very big, coffee table-sized, thick books that go into super detail, you know, as to how these things are made. And, you know, like I said, it's it'll, it'll take you some time to get through a book like this. And I just like to say off the bat that this one was another amazing making of type of book. Now, I've read a couple of other books in the past. Uh, the most recent one I can remember is The Planet of the Apes Revisited, which was more of a soft cover version. And they do go into, obviously, all of the stuff or most of the stuff that I reread on this book. With this book, they just go so much deeper into it. And what's really interesting about this book is the amount of archival material that they're able to put into it. In my particular case, I'm a big fan of concept art and the development of how the art progresses to the final you know, stage of what it will look like when it's finally shot. They really go crazy here with the amount of art. I love it. It's absolutely fantastic. The other book I read around the same time back then was The Timeline of the Planet of the Apes. And this is more of a trying to put in some sort of a chronology the, the history of the events that take place throughout the films. This is not what this book is about. This book is about more the making of. Uh, however, because you get to look at the progression of the script, you do see how these characters are molded and shaped and influenced by so many different people, not just the writer or the director, but the star of the film. You know, there are a lot of different players that can put in their little two cents here or there to help, you know, with the creation of the characters. The book 
like I said, you, you got to go through this book because there's so many gems of information in there. And depending on what you're into the most, that's where you'll probably gravitate towards. The format of the book follows his earlier books. You get sprinkled throughout the book, not only the sequence of events that lead to the making of the film, but along the way, you get to see major script revisions. You get to see a little bit of the history behind the person that is introduced into the formation of the film, whether it's a producer or a director or a writer. You know, you get all that background material onto how and why and how did it turn out by introducing this person into the creative process. For me, the most interesting part of the book, I think, is the pre-production part of the book, because it's how they ended up with what was agreed upon to shoot and to do at that time. And this is one of those things that you can make a movie just about that, because it is just so amazing and how long this picture was in development you know if you ever hear of a a movie being in development this movie was in development for like over three years it is ridiculous the amount of time spent the book originally was written by pierre bull who all of a sudden became a a commodity a known commodity especially in hollywood because of the fact that he wrote the bridge on the river kwai and it was adapted and all of a sudden, you know, everybody and their grandmother is like, uh, ooh, this is good. This is making money. This People like this. Uh, what else has he written or what else is he writing? So that's a very important name, you know, that you're dealing with in the book. Probably the most important name, I would say, is Arthur Jacobs. Arthur Jacobs was a, a press agent. He was uh, all about promoting movie stars. And at a certain point, he kind of said, you know what, I want to actually make these movies. So he became a producer. And Planet of the Apes was one of the ones that he was shooting for. So at a certain point, he hears about this book that's about to come out from the guy who wrote Bridge on the River Kwai. And, you know, he wants to beat everyone to the punch, reads the book, likes it, makes the guy an offer. More or less, the offer is accepted. So he starts to kind of work on funding, you know, for this project. Because of his skills as a promoter, he starts to kind of plant stories in Hollywood newspapers about how this movie is going to be made and it's going to be the greatest thing in the world. The guy is a salesman. He's just, he's just a nonstop salesman. And that is this other side of Hollywood that you don't necessarily want to know about, but it exists and it is huge. It is the money-making part of Hollywood. Initially, once he has the rights to the book for a certain amount of time, he now needs to generate enough interest for a studio to commit to making the movie for a certain amount of money. And he understands that it, during that time, and even these days probably, I imagine, what really sells a movie a movie that's expensive, that is, and it still works uh, these days, is a package. And the package is usually a combination of a movie star, maybe a very well-known director. And once you lock in those two people, that's when you then go to the studio and say, look, I got the rights to the story. I got the star. I got the director. Give me the money. <laughs> that's how you do it. And that's how a lot of things get done these days. Because certain directors and certain movie stars have enough clout to pull it off. So off the bat, he 
gets Lee Thompson, the director of the time, and he starts to court Marlon Brando. So, you know, you figure, whoa, Marlon Brando, that's a big, that's a big name, especially back then. But things kind of go back and forth and back and forth. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about 1963 here. So when Jacobs hears about this book, is technically, you could say, before the, the commercial release of the book. So just like everybody else, any Hollywood individual, you know, they're trying to get the rights of this book before anybody else does. And that's what he's able to do. He's able to get these rights beforehand. Now, as he starts to court Marlon Brando, they do have also some backups. They have some of the mentioned notable names are Paul Newman, who will then become the secondary person that they start to court. Uh, George Pippard, Rod Taylor, Sean Connery, Steve McQueen, you know, the, the big shots of that time. You know, this is, again, this is 1963, 1964 we're talking about. And initially, the film was envisioned to be shot in black and white, which is another interesting thing, because you, you got to remember, this is a period where, you know, things are changing from, from the option of shooting in black and white or color, and it is not that unusual. The other thing is that because of the way that the story went, you know, the initial book, the look of the ape society was supposed to look exactly like our society, modern cars, planes, you know, buildings, that kind of looking society, modern cities. So that's what they were envisioning at first, because that's how the book was written. And, and as I mentioned before, He, he, uh, Jacobs even uh, starts to hire conceptual artists. And this is where I get into the really, you know, good stuff of how, you know, this concept art starts to show up, especially on this book. It is great to be able to see all this concept art. And initially, the concept art goes along with the first designs of the look of what an ape society would look like and how it drastically changes as he gets more concept artists in the mix through the years by the time they get to the final design. So initially, he's dealing with Fox. And they're dealing with them for a while. And they're trying to get all their ducks in a row. And Fox falls through. <laughs> this is something that will happen many times. The studio loses interest. The studio has some kind of financial problem. And they start dumping projects. And this is one of the projects they, they dump. Then the project ends up at Warner Brothers. However, by this time... To make the deal with Warner Brothers, or to start courting Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers, uh, the stipulation is that they will use Blake Edwards as the director. So here's a period where Jacobs has to make a concession. Uh, and it's a number of concessions he will make to get this picture to be funded. But at this point, the project moves forward because Warner Brothers is able to procure the rights of the book for filming. In other words, Jacob's got the initial permission to kind of lock them in, and now Warner Brothers is putting in the big money, you know, to say, all right, we're standing behind this. We're really, really thinking of funding this. And that, that, that's a thing. Keep in mind that it, it takes time for these things to happen, and it happens in stages. And it took them about four months after the book was published to commit to this from the Warner Brothers side. So they go on for a while. Now, keep in mind, while this is happening, scripts are being written 
more concept art is being made, more actors are being courted, the studio, they're dealing with the studio to get them to green light the film, you know, to actually commit to uh, a, an actual production. Because right now they're still kind of, they're still kind of tippy-toeing around it. They're putting money into it, but they're still tippy-toeing. Paul Newman drops out of the film, <laughs> so they kind of keep looking. Jack Lemon apparently is another person that they're looking at. The studio also is interested in, uh, which initially he was being looked at as a, 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 a person to play Cornelius. With Edward Blake, Don Peters gets brought in as an, a new conceptual uh, artist. And this guy did a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of the more recognizable part of the uh, concept art. He is possibly responsible primarily responsible for the concept of the Statue of Liberty being at the end of the movie, the reveal, if you will. However, if you listen to stories, there's a lot of people that kind of, sort of take credit or partial credit. You have uh, the director also kind of taking credit, Jacob taking credit, uh, and even Rod Sterling, who was in the process uh, of trying to write the script uh, again, another gigantic, uh, you know, post-Twilight Zone guy involved in this. You know, he also... But again, the, the book really gives you the impression that the, the initial spark for that came from it came from, from, from the artist, the actual uh, concept artist. Uh, Sterling's idea was to give it that twist at the end, which, again, the book also has a twist, but it's a different twist. But the twist that he's been there all along at Earth... I think comes very, very strongly from Sterling uh, because they, it's almost like a recycled punchline or a recycled shocking point from an episode of The Twilight Zone, actually. So this is definitely a collaboration, and you can see how all these different little tiny pieces make up the final product. You can't just say one person did this or one person did that. It's You really see you know, all these fingers that are touching this, and... Um, shaping it and molding it to what it becomes at the end. So after looking around some more, now they bounce to Charlton Heston and Franklin Schaffner. Now these are very important names because these will be the names that go all the way with this film. By this point, it's about a year and a half after Jacobs started getting the rights to even, or to the option to, to be able to pursue this. You can tell how much time is passing a year and a half has passed already. So Fox is still being courted in terms of the, getting them to commit. And finally, because of the success of certain things, of certain other things, like The Sound of Music being a hit for Fox, you know, they're okay, this is, this is good. It gives Fox the green light to uh, let Jacobs to do Dr. Doolittle, another kind of musical, spectacular kind of film, if they're going to go in that direction, you know, if they want to kind of follow in the Sound of Music steps. This gives Jacobs a little more clout that he didn't have before, and it gives him the ability to keep pitching Planet of the Apes. The book talks about how he kept pitching it and pitching it, and they kept turning him away, and every now and then he would go to other studios and black back and forth and back and forth, but at least it gave them that. And Richard Zanuck at the time, the son of the, the, the father, the other Zanuck, legendary Fox executive, he was running things at, the point, at that time, and 
He was getting so tired of Jacobs, but he didn't want to blow him off at the same time. So he agreed to let them do a test shot. And this is something that has shown up on the internet. You could see it. And I think anybody even made it one of the documentaries of what it would look like. Because the, the, they were all terrified that the apes, the, the actual makeup for the apes would be laughable. That people would just not buy it. Uh, that was the thing they were most afraid of. Everybody was afraid of that. And that's what kept the studios from kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to commit, you know, millions of dollars or something like this. So they scheduled a test shoot for December of 1965. So it's like, think about it. Now we're talking about two years later. We're two years into this project and they're finally going to do a test shot. And then, and it's there. They do it in March of 1966 with Edward G. Robinson playing Dr. Zayas, who he will start to kind of play him at first and then bow out of the project. Uh, James Brolin as Cornelius, Linda Harrison as Zira, and Charlton Heston as Taylor. It's is very different. This is a very different looking. The makeup is not there. No, it's not there yet. It's a little scary. <laughs> it's a little odd. But the Dr. Zayas makeup, there's a little bit of it in there. You can kind of see the beginnings of what it's going to look like. Really, really interesting. Another interesting point is that here you have Linda Harrison playing Zira. And Linda Harrison was a somewhat inexperienced actress she hooked on to Richard Zanuck as his girlfriend. And what's really, really interesting about this is that you hear stories like this all the time. There have been portrayed in movies, portrayed in television shows where the star, you know, a very important Hollywood individual falls for a girl who's not necessarily the best of anything as far as acting talent goes, but she is gorgeous. And he then starts putting her in a lot of things because of his clout. And this is what's really interesting in the book is that she admits that. She kind of admits that, yeah, that she was being, you know, kind of courted around and brought to places and being able to get certain things because she was his girl. And I think at the time he wasn't completely divorced or something like that. So there was some, there was some shenanigans going on behind the scenes, but it was made very clear at a certain point, you know, that she was going to be in this film because he basically promised her he would get her a part in the film. And yeah, that's, that's Hollywood power for you. That's the type of stuff that today you would just be like, oh my God, did that just happen? And it did. So more time passes, more writers are brought in. Fox starts to kind of dwindle a little bit in, in their interest, but then they release Fantastic Voyage, big sci-fi fantastic, if you will, a film, very popular, very, very profitable. And uh, Jacobs is able to do like one last pitch and say, listen, here we go. We have this now. We have the proof that a sci-fi concept could make a lot of money. So on his final pitch, uh, Zanuck says, all right, let's do it. So they slate it for May of 1967 to begin shooting. So now they have some time to really rev things up 
and give it the final green light and commit to a budget and do all these types of things. Like I mentioned, uh, writers uh, are brought in. Uh, first, they have a, it was Sterling, but he had to leave because he, he spent so much time. He was moving on to other projects. Next came uh, a gentleman, uh, I think his last name was Eastman. He didn't work out at all. They had him briefly and he went in a completely different direction and they decided, no, 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 no. We got we to we get this back on track. It's funny because it reminds me of uh, The Empire Strikes Back how Lee Brackett was brought in and apparently her version of the of the story was so out there that they kind of had to bring it, rein it back in and bring yet another writer, uh, you know, back to get things back on track. But this is what happens with Eastman and they bring in Wilson. And Wilson apparently does a lot of things to change Sterling's script. Another thing is that because of the budget of the film, because Jacobs had agreed to do it in in what might have been half or almost half of what the original budget he thought was going to be, he had to trim so many things. So one of the ways of trimming the budget was to... And also because as they started to work on the uh, makeup, Edward G. Robinson was really having a tough time with the makeup, and he was also a very expensive star. By letting him go from the film, they were able to save a lot of money. By changing the decor or the, the set from a modern or a futuristic ape city to a more primitive, more tree-like you know, pre-industrial, pre-Middle Ages kind of looking, which is what we ended up with. That was also a way of saving a lot of money. At one point, they were even thinking of shooting in England to save money. But no, they, they were able to kind of bring things down. And that's another thing that with some of these uh, conceptual artists and the writer and Wilson, they were then able to change things around more to what the final product that we have now is. And as expected, as they rounded out the casting with Kim Hunter and Roddy McDowell and all the other players, they brought in uh, Maurice Evans to take over for F.G. Robinson. And it was understood at the time, and they don't go too much into detail, but it was basically understood that Linda Harrison was going to play Nova. And it was one of those Hollywood things of... This is what the producer is going to compromise. These are the compromises that you have to make in order to get your picture made. Now, granted, as some of these other films that happen now, that the best example to me would be Rogue One. There were a lot of behind-the-scenes shenanigans going on with the story, but the finished product is really good. This is apparently, in my opinion something that did not affect the film. The film, when you just watch the film and don't read how it was made, it's perfect. It's a perfectly made, encompassing film, story, characters, actors. They all kind of work. You know, It's the perfect storm in a good way. But you could easily see how things could go off the rails, you know, once something falls apart. But here it worked out. The movie opened in 1968, which is about five years, if you think about it, five years after... The beginning of this project had started and boy there's a lot of documentaries uh, that you can watch i would say alongside when reading this book behind the planet of the apes documentary from 1998 that's the one that's hosted by roddy mcdowell which was either included in the dvd release or there were, i think I, it was also a sci-fi channel special or something about it but it's out there i strongly recommend it because it's one of these very thorough making of type of things there's another documentary I recently watched called Making Apes, The Artists Who Changed Film. 
that is all about uh, John Chambers and Tom Berman, the people involved in the making of the appliances, the makeup effects. You know, this the, this film got an Oscar for makeup effects. Chambers is a whole other story. Chambers is one of the guys behind, if you remember the movie Argo, about how the CIA hired a Hollywood makeup guy to help them uh, disguise some people to get them out of Iran during the Iran crisis. Well, John Chambers is that person. And this documentary is just so powerful about, again, the behind the scenes things that are taking place between friends, between co-workers in this particular film and in the makeup field in general there is such rich material there for you guys if you like you know if you are interested in the making of planet of the apes the book like i said right now i basically concentrated on telling you about more or less the pre-production getting to the production but the book is just as thick and exhaustively detailed into the production day by day events you know what was shot what were the problems what were the special effects the music you know you name it it's fantastic i cannot wait you know to see uh, more of these books i know i got at least another one that i'm going to start soon and there are more coming but i just can't wait this is another great one for rinsler now as i mentioned earlier the style of this book is very much like the Star Wars books that he put out a while back. And while he's kind of broken away from continuing to do these Star Wars books, he has done some others that are, you could kind of call them in this realm in a way. In other words, this particular one we just did today, the Planet of the Apes one, is very much in the vein of the Star Wars books. He also put out an alien version of these type of books, which I'm going to read next. And in a couple of weeks, there's going to be an aliens version, which I am really, really excited about because that is, uh, you know, one of my favorite, if not my favorite of all of the alien films. But the funny thing about the Star Wars books is that he was supposed to put out another one. And uh, recently I watched an interview from a, a different podcaster uh, where they talked about some of these things that were kind of like unfinished very briefly. And a lot of them, unfortunately, because they have to do with Star Wars, there are NDAs involved, non-disclosure agreements, whereby his parting ways with Lucasfilm or Disney, if you will, because during this interview, he does talk a bit about how things just didn't work out once Disney took over. He had a certain amount of independence uh, working under Lucasfilm and obviously access to, to Lucas himself and being able to just pitch and do, pitch and do a project. With Disney, it became a completely different animal. And as a result of him parting ways uh, with Disney, there was a force awakens book similar to these star wars or planet of the apes books in the works i, I actually do remember uh, around the time the movie was out or about to come out that even amazon already had it pre-listed i mean they didn't have they didn't have a picture of the cover but the book itself was pre-listed as you know you could add it to your wish list or you could pre-order it but that never happened and at the time i remember we speculated that, well, you know, the, the, there was um, a little bit of controversy running around the film production problems. I think it had to do, at first it was when, when Harrison Ford broke his leg that the whole production stopped and they kind of delayed it by a couple of extra months, which 
at the time, J.J. Abrams mentioned that, that it was something, it was good in a way that they got to get, have extra time because he wanted extra time. Uh, he wanted more time to put this movie together. And it, it, it bought him that extra time that was needed. But you kind of got the impression that this story of this movie was a little too fresh. And there might have been other items in the background that maybe Disney didn't, didn't want to have to talk about at the time. Granted, with the later movies, I could I could see exactly how and why, you know, they would not want to talk about it. With what happened with uh, Rogue One, the, the behind-the-scenes goings-on of, of Rogue One, Solo, the firing of the directors, the backlash of The Last Jedi, you name it, The Rise of Skywalker, you could kind of see that all of these other future films that... To give this particular treatment, to give this particular treatment would have been very difficult because you are getting such a one-sided story, you know, off the bat. Remember, as I mentioned many times before, these are excellent books, but you are getting a, a, a very one-sided, you know, the Lucasfilm side of the story with those three original books. You know, you're not getting all the voices out there. You're not getting all the dissenting voices, if you will, of how certain events occurred. This would have been a strictly Disney or Disneyfied version of the story. And just like it happens when a company gets bought out, you're going to have a split, a branching off, a fracturing, if you will, of sides to all of these stories. And now with Disney being the overall owner and force driving, you know, this train. Yeah, it, it, it pro there, there's probably a lot of stuff behind the scenes that, you know what, it's probably we're not ready to hear it yet. Time has to pass. These books were put out years and years and years after the events took place. So it kind of gives time for everybody to kind of cool off a little bit. Granted, some people will carry their grudges to their grave, but I can kind of see how The Force Awakens would have been a very difficult book to put together. As a result of that, obviously, he didn't leave in the best of terms because even though it, it probably didn't, I don't get the impression that he had a, you know, a huge, you know, rip-roaring exit, you know, from Lucasfilm Disney. But I do remember... Around the time that he was starting to part ways, he had a blog. And this is something that, again, I think goes back to his NDA. He started writing a blog about the making of Revenge of the Sith, I think. And in that blog, he wrote certain things having to do with how the actors reacted to Lucas's script writing and how they just didn't like it and how difficult it was to kind of put some of his writing into the screen, into, into the performances. And some weird shenanigans started to happen around that time where he would put these individual editions of this, of this blog, different volumes, and he would add more information and more information. And one day it got taken down completely with no real reason or uh, it was something having to do with Lucasfilm objecting to not wanting these stories to be out there and they did disappear. So it is very possible and again I'm just speculating here because this is an area where it is complete editorial speculating that this might have been part of his parting 
negotiations, if you will. This NDA that he keeps talking about on this interview that he gave, in terms of they would maybe give him a certain amount of money to leave quietly and to not talk about exactly what happened with the making of the Force Awakens book and his blog. There's something there. And even on the interview, he mentions something about how it would be interesting if one day he's able to put together a project on the blog, which is really, really interesting. So that is an aspect of of his writing that uh, I would be very interested in, in, in reading one day. But in the meantime, he does at least keep putting out these sort of books. I know he has a book coming out very soon, um, a fiction book. You know, he's, he's giving a, he's giving it a shot writing fiction. He wrote another book, I think about Rick Baker. Now, I'm not sure exactly if it's this particular format, but it is one of these thick, you know, coffee table monstrosities <laughs> that uh, I keep joking with people that th- these are the type of books that if you were to fall asleep reading them in bed, you would probably end up in the hospital because the size of these books hitting you in the head would be pretty scary. They're wonderful books. My God, you can spend a good week or two or three just diving into these movies, the making of process. He does have a formula, like we mentioned earlier, but it is fantastic. It is just simply fantastic how you get into every aspect you know, of the making. They will automatically become the standard you know, of whatever topic is being covered, whether it's Star Wars or... Planet of the Apes, everything that comes before that, you know, pales in comparison. And it's um, it's kind of like when they used to do the Criterion version of a film. They would remaster it and add more material and add supplement. You know, it was like the the top of the pile of, of best of the best. These books, I believe, are in that manner. You know, these definitive editions, if you will, of the making of a certain film. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each, one to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, for our first poster today, we have the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom teaser poster. Now, this is an interesting poster because not only is it a different stylistically made poster, but it's a teaser. You know, you're not showing too much of what is happening. It's supposed to just obviously tease you into it. And I believe I do remember seeing this poster in two different places. Number one, again, I could be wrong. My memory is what it is. But I think I remember seeing it offered on the Star Wars fan club, which back then, I don't know if it was called the Lucasfilm fan club, because I know it kind of went back and forth, the name, but because it was under you know, all of the Lucas properties at one point that, you know, you, you did start to see news about Indiana Jones, Willow and Tucker, you know, anything that anything that Lucas was associated with the fan club covered, yeah, you know, because of the lack of Star Wars, obviously. 
But I do remember seeing this photo, I remember, and this poster again, I think. And I also remember seeing it, I think, in the movie theater. This poster made it to some movie theaters also. And it's pretty basic. It's a little different than the usual poster, if you will, like like, like a normal one-sheet. Reason being, it is not a stylistically drawn type of poster. You know, the, it's not a Struzan type of poster. It's not a, you know... Uh, an Alves type of poster. It's it's more of a photo that's been enhanced and kind of photoshopped in order to give you a glimpse of what's coming down the line. Now, let me just describe the poster a little bit, and you you know you'll see it in the art, but and you might even be familiar with it for all I know. If you guys are real, you know, if you're big fans of uh, Indiana Jones, but this is a poster that you have more or less a medium shot from the waist up of Indy. He's leaning against a pillar, a rock pillar, with a big rope around the pillar, which is basically, if you remember the movie, one of the bases of the rope bridge. You know, one of those two end pieces of the road bridge. He's kind of leaning against it with his elbow on it. And he's got one of those big, long sword machete type of things behind him. He's not necessarily smiling, but he's kind of giving you a... Uh, a friendly look, not a serious look, more like a friendly look. And you can tell that this is a promotional shot taken during the, the actual shoot of the film because he's got the shirt that's been ripped already. You see one arm exposed. You see the other arm with the cuff unbuttoned, covering his hands, but you can't see in his hand his bullwhip. He's got his satchel on across the chest. The shirt is open, completely ripped open. So... It's, I don't know if you want to call it kind of like a sexy shot in terms of, is this supposed to like entice, I guess, maybe more women into wanting to see this film? I don't know. Uh, this is definitely not the, a look that you are familiar with, you know, in the previous film, you know, in Raiders. He still has his hat. Obviously, you got to have the hat, hat and the whip. <laughs> I can't really see the gun anywhere, but I think that's the gun holster there. And what's really interesting about this poster, and then I'll get into it in a minute, it's it's the shading. It's a photo that's been enhanced. And the way that they enhanced the photo was by making it very red and orangish. There's something about this particular look that makes it very different than just a complete realistic snapshot. It's been enhanced. On the bottom, it says Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dew, coming May 23rd, 1984. Okay. Then on the top... Right next to his head, it says, trust him. So it's a very interesting tease of what's happening. They could have gone a lot more simpler. They didn't have to. If you know nothing of this film, you're definitely, you know, your your, your attention has been piqued. It's like, what's going on here? Let's see. Uh, well, there's, there's a rock. And okay, well, he's an archaeologist. So you figure he's into that sort of thing. But there's a sword also. Sword. Interesting that he's... he's um, handling uh, some kind of a sword instead of holding a gun, which seems like that's unusual. There's no hint whatsoever, other than the name Temple of Doom, of what are we dealing with? Is this Nazis again? Is this something else? You know, what is it? So it's, it's really hard to kind of tell where we're going from this. Now, from this poster, we jump to a poster that I believe I already talked about, and, was, and that was the original one sheet. It's the hand-drawn more classical poster of him standing in front of the temple, I guess, with the steps. And you're looking up at him and he's got the machete also, but he's got it down on the side of his uh, body. You know, he's holding it down. 
and you're getting a little more feel of the location on that poster. But this was what you got before, and you're again, you're like not sure what's going on. Now, this ends up being a prequel to Raiders, so it's unusual in terms of how or why we would go in that direction. I guess it's a way of explaining not having to have any Nazis around or anything like that. But it worked because, you know, he they didn't wait so long between movies that all of a sudden he looks a lot older. Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, to me, while not my favorite, it's consistently good in terms of being close enough to Raiders to be good. You know, the, the way that I mentioned it before was that I liked the films in the order they were put out. You know, Raiders was my favorite. Indy was the second. Last Crusade. And then Crystal Skull. I remember when I did see Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, I, I was a little disappointed. And my biggest disappointment with it was in the tone, the comedic tone, that they decided to go a little too wacky funny. Now, I know I could spend a half hour here talking about how that's a bad thing. <laughs> that is, it's not, to me, it wasn't in the same tone as Raiders. Raiders was more real, more serious. It had some funny moments, but it was a more serious overall film. But this one, between Willie and Short Round, it was like a slapstick comedy at times. So, you know, it took away something from it. However, the look and the feel of especially the action sequences, to me, this one uh, gets a little closer, you know, than the rest of them. But anyway, going back to this poster. Yeah. This is big. When you saw this for the first time, it was like, oh my God, there's another one coming and I can't believe it's coming and this and that. And it's like, you're waiting for it, you're waiting for it. And then it's finally here in 84. This particular poster, I never purchased from the fan club. I kind of passed on it because back then I really wasn't into teaser posters. I was more into the the one sheets and I did get a number of especially Star Wars ones. As a matter of fact, all of them Star Wars ones uh, from the fan club, but I passed on this. And I recently purchased a reproduction of it, you know, a, a print, uh, which looks pretty good. It's not a perfect print, but because of the style, again, once you look at this picture, you'll 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 see what I'm where I'm coming from. The specific style of the look of that picture, it is based on a picture on a photograph, but it has been touched up to give it a different look. And I started doing a little research, and finally, I found the the artist or the designer, if you will of this particular thing. His name is Chris Hopkins. And I found uh, an interview that he gave to a, a different podcast. And it's really, really good in terms of if you want to really find out where all this stuff comes from. And I'm going to post a link to it. But basically what he said is that at the time he was approached by an advertising agency called Cinegar. And they specialized in film advertisements and that sort of thing. And it was a quick project that he even mentions that it was a very low paying gig. But when they told him what it was for, he was like, all right, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> because again, it's one of these things where they hook you with the prestige of what you're working on, not so much on the money. And like many of the posters at the time, especially with Lucasfilm, I guess, or maybe a lot of properties, what they would do is they would get many, many artists to give them, you know, they would hire them to either do something or to do a comp, which is a rough sketch of what they think that they could produce. 
And then out of, I don't know, dozens, they would then pick the one they would go for. So there's a lot of this comp material floating around that never gets used or that eventually makes it to the next round and then finally it becomes an actual poster. But what he said was that it was a very quick turnaround type of scenario. They wanted it done super fast, and he did. He says the materials that he used uh, were basically some pictures because obviously the movie they, they couldn't show him the movie at the time, but they had some promotional photos or maybe behind-the-scenes photos, but that is the particular picture they wanted him, I think, to work with. So he kind of came up with that design of you know, indie. Now, granted, apparently his particular drawing, his his particular first piece of art is way bigger than this poster. So in other words, the poster is kind of from the waist up. He had drawn something or he had made something that is almost a full body shot of him leaning against those posts or that particular post. But for the poster's purposes, they kind of cropped it. So it's just waist up, you know, situation. Now, why these particular colors? And what he said is that the instructions that he got from Lucasfilm, the people that he was, you know, uh, talking to about what they wanted him to do, was that they wanted the poster to have a a very reddish tint to it because the the movie had to had a lot of things to do with caves and fire and maybe even lava, you know. So, and if you think about it, the the temple itself, it's the temple that kind of weird, evil, fiery, scary looking thing. They wanted you to have that as a tease of what Indy was going to be dealing with with this poster. And that's why you do see these very orangey, reddish, uh, yellow colors all over the the you know the, the the light that is hitting Indy. You see half his face is dark, half his face is light. You could say, could that be kind of like a Return of the Jedi thing where you want to hint at good and evil? Is that a possibility of what they were going for or what he was going for? Who knows? But they wanted you to feel... Granted, you know, this is every movie you make, every sequel you make to a franchise like this, you always have to give the audience the feel that... This is it. This is the one that's going to blow you away and you're going to see something you've never seen before. You know, you get that. They, 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 they always want to hook you. And that's kind of what they're trying to do with this poster, too. I remember with Return of the Jedi, the big thing was like the teaser. The, the actual teaser itself had a lot to do with the color red and the color black and Luke dressed in black. And, oh, my God, is Luke turning evil? So... You know, this is a year after Jedi came out. So you might be thinking, well, maybe that's what he was kind of going for. He's trying to tease the audience into thinking that Indy is a little nuts in this one or something. I don't know. But those were specific instructions that he got in terms of the color palette and, and what he wanted to portray, you know, with this thing. Now, as I mentioned, the, the poster for the, the one that I saw, the one that I have, very simple. The only text you have other than the title is trust him and then the date in the bottom. However... In the international version of this poster, instead of trust them on that top section, you have, if adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. Interesting. Again, they're trying to appeal to a different audience. Trust him might not be enough for an international audience to understand where what you're dealing with. So they they kind of give you the the original sentence of if Adventure has a name, because I remember that's how it was teased, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The artist, Mr. Hopkins, also talks about how he did this poster. Again, remember, this is before computers. 
of how they do posters these days. And yes, because this is a way off in terms of the what's being done traditionally at the time. You know, your your hand painted brush painted posters. He used airbrushes and acrylics in order to color and to kind of soften the image and to kind of overexpose the image also a little bit. This was done like that back then. You would airbrush, you know, you would airbrush your photos, your prints, so that you would end up with this particular look. Granted, now it's all done with a computer, like I mentioned it about a million times, but in order to create those glows and those very soft transitional colors, in order to, to paint the skin on a picture, that is either black and white or color. That's the other thing. I'm not sure. It was probably color, I imagine. But for his purposes, you never know how he starts off with, you know, with these, you know, basic ingredients before he starts adding his own stuff. So, yeah, there was apparently, and you could see it, a lot of airbrushing done in this in order to um, generate all these colors. But but with airbrushing, you also have to be a, a little careful because, you know, airbrushing can also eliminate a lot of the detail. You know, so, you know, if you look at his face, you can still see the scruff of his beard, you know, and, and you can't just airbrush that away. You don't want to airbrush that away. So, yeah, he did have to use, I mean, granted, a lot of airbrushing, but I'm sure he also used a lot more of other kinds of things to, to be able to maintain the detail. On the interview, he gives a, a really cool story about where this poster is now. And he talked about how because he did it for so cheap, because he did it for such a low wage, uh, one of the things he requested at the time is, well, you know, I'll, I'll do it for the low wage, but what I would like is to have the poster back when they're done, you know, printing and using it. I, I would like to have my painting back. And he said that that is something that's a little unusual at the time, because especially with Lucasfilm, just about everything that was ever submitted to Lucasfilm, as far as art goes, Lucasfilm kept. But for whatever reason, his his manager was able, or his agent was able to uh, get that, that picture back, the, the, the actual painting he got it back and he said he had it at home and he says one day his his very young daughter asked him you know hey dad can i uh, i'd like to buy one of your pictures and, and she, i don't know i think she was like six or seven years old and, and she's had like a, her piggy bank with her or something like that and he was like well okay honey which one would you like he said i want the one of indiana jones and she gave him 93 cents for it it's a it's a funny it's a cute little story so he says yep he sold his he sold that painting to her for 93 cents and that picture it basically sat, you know, in, in his studio, you know, anyway, for, for many, many years later. And then fast forward to, I don't know, 15, 20 years later, and he gets a phone call from a an auction house, I think, or, or, or a collecting house or something like that, uh, asking him because they figured out his name and they found his name somewhere and they were trying to trace people that had done art for films like, you know, all the Lucasfilm stuff and Star Wars or whatever. And they asked him about it and he said that uh, if he had any, and he said, well, no, I don't really have any Star Wars stuff, which he actually did some Star Wars stuff, believe it or not. He had done some comp work for Return of the Jedi. He had done some of those hands holding the lightsaber concept sketches, if you will, before they decided to go on the one with the one they did go with. But he told him that no, he you know he did he did, he didn't have any of that stuff anymore. He says, but I do have an Indiana Jones poster that I did, and they were like, what? They completely didn't realize that he had that, or he had been the artist who did that. So they said to him, all right, let us know what you got exactly, and uh, are you willing to sell it? 
And he was like, well, let me find it, uh, but I would have to check with the owner because he says, my daughter technically is the owner of the poster. So at the time, he said he contacted his daughter who was in college, I think. And uh, he said to her, hey, listen, um, somebody's offering me uh, some money for the poster. Remember that poster that, that you bought from me? Uh, the, the painting of Indiana Jones. And she was like, yeah, sell it, sell it, sell it right away. <laughs> so he said that she made something like 4,000% profit off of her 93 cent investment, uh, which is a really cute story. And now that, you know, the poster was, he sold, you know, she sold it. He sold it on her behalf uh, and they made some money from it. But that's a cute little story of whatever, you know, whatever happened to that poster, you know, the original art, the original painting. So that's kind of, that's a cute story. Uh, like I said, I will post this particular podcast interview because it's really uh, interesting and you get to know about his other art that he's worked on and what he's working on now. And his, you know, he didn't seem to dabble too much, just a little bit in the, in the film uh, because he jumps from medium to medium. He does these type of paintings and those type of paintings. But it's really, really interesting when you find these people that for a very brief time, they are connected to either Star Wars or E.T. or Jaws, you know, all these great movies that uh, we love and that they had a small part to play that have become lost, you know, through the years. The, the names kind of drift away and you're like, oh, that's right. Somebody must have made that. You know, you're staring at this poster your entire life that sits in your room. And then you're like, yeah, it's one of those kind of situations where it's like, wow, I wish I knew a little more about this person. And uh, then you, thanks to the internet, you start to dig and dig and dig and boom, there it is. You find the background behind that particular poster. Our second poster is Buck Rogers. Well, this is Buck Rogers in the 25th century television show from the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, it only lasted two seasons, so you really don't get much to experience. However, this is one of the very first shows that I watched here in the States. And it, it blew me away. That show was just fantastic. It is the brainchild of Gene Larson. Obviously, Buck Rogers is a property that's been around for a very long time. So this was the, the reimagining, I guess, or the rebooting of a Buck Rogers franchise. The poster itself is really interesting because what happened with Buck Rogers, you know, we did a show about this a very long time ago. We talked about the show and how it worked. You know, it was a television show, it was released in a movie theater. Well, that's exactly what happened. The reason why this poster exists in the manner in which it exists is because this is a movie poster. However, this was a television show. However, <laughs> but they had decided that it looked so good, I guess to the, to the people making the show, that they wanted to have a theatrical release, a theatrical version of it. And I think Battlestar Galactica might have done something similar, you know, like kind of like a limited engagement theatrical release, at least of the first episode or the first two episodes or something like that. They also did it with Buck Rogers. The poster is very, I guess you could say, slightly comic bookish. Some of the things I love about the poster, first of all, it is that it's it's art. It is it is complete art. Some of it could have probably came from pictures as the basis of the art, but it is art. You could see the, you know, you could see the drawings, you could see all that stuff. And it's, it's just, there's a certain quality to a poster that is drawn as opposed to something that is just a, a photograph that's been retouched. You know, I, I do have my preferences, as you can probably tell by now. And it does have this old timey feel to it. Now, granted, 
the overall feel of the poster, I guess it's supposed to, you know, evoke the old-timey Buck Rogers serials and that sort of thing. There is a, the, the poster is laid out really differently than most others. Dead center of the poster, you have Buck, Wilma, and Tweaky. Buck is aiming the gun off to the right of the viewer, let's say. Very action, kind of action figure pose. Then at the, uh, let's see, at the at the uh, two o'clock position, you have the evil princess, you know, that she's always fighting against and she's always hitting on him. She's holding what appears to be, I don't know, a sword or some kind of weird looking device. Then at the around, uh, let's say four o'clock position, you have some of the bad guy ships flying around and you get a also a slight close up of, I think it's Buck in the cockpit of his fighter. In the 11 o'clock position, you have, I think that's Tiger Man, who is the, the princess's bodyguard, thug, enforcer. You know, he's a scary-looking guy with tattoos on his face and a long mustache, and he's got a gun, and you could see his chest because he's this super muscle guy. Then in the uh, 8 o'clock position, you have Kane, which is, I think, the princess's advisor, top evil advisor, and some of his troops running around with guns and manning uh, some kind of station and an explosion going off and some of those troops being flung in the air. Slightly behind Buck, Wilma, and Tweaky, you also have, uh, I guess it's the, I forget the name of it, but it's the the new city, the new new Chicago, new New York, whatever new part of the world that still exists because of the wars that ravaged the earth, and now they only have one city, one main city left there. Futuristic, very futuristic city. Up on the top of the poster, you have the tease for the logo that says, The Original Spaceman, The Ultimate Trip. Buck Rogers swings back to Earth and lays it on the 25th century. I'm not sure what that means, but (laughs) that's kind of weird. I don't think they would write that today. That's a kind of weird phrase. I guess maybe it's of the time. In the bottom, you know, below his feet, the the, the bottom uh, quarter of the poster, if you will, if you will, more or less, Buck Rogers with parentheses. It has Buck Rogers in parentheses, which is kind of weird. I never really noticed that. The name of the show had to be in parentheses. And below that, you have the credits, like a movie poster. Buck Rogers, Gene A. Larson Production, you know, Gil Gerard, Aaron Gray, Pamela Hunt, you know, all the names of the people involved, the writer, director, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, you know, copyright 1979, Universal. This is the one sheet for the film, for, for the film presentation. Now, granted, this particular art would be reused so many other times, What's a little unusual about the poster that I've never noticed before, and I, I, I found it on a website here, is that it does not say in the 25th century. In other words, in the 25th or on the 25th century, it's on that little uh, text that's on top of the poster. But on the actual title of the film, it is not listed as Buck Rogers in the 25th century, which that's the name of the show. The television show has the entire title. So that's a little odd that they chose to go with that, at least for the movies. Now, what makes it also unusual is the fact that the British version of this poster, which is called a quad, again, British poster design is different. They they lay them out in, in, in a um, landscape kind of mode, if you will. And the American versions are more of a letter style, if you if you know what I'm talking about. Well, the British version has the entire name on it. So it's kind of weird how they decided that for the American market, they would have shortened the name of the product as opposed to the British version that they kept the whole thing. That's a silly little uh, anecdote about it. The design of the poster, again, is, is unusual because 
all of these items that I'm mentioning to you, and you'll see it in the art when you when you look at when you click on the art, things are separated by like what appears to be like lightning bolts, these white lightning bolts. So you could separate all these different images. It's kind of comic bookish in a way, you could say, because the granted, you know, again, Buck Rogers. It's supposed to make you think of this old-timey show, this old-timey comic book even. And that's why you get, I think, those white lightning bolts. It's a separation. It's like a comic book separation. Instead of solid lines, it becomes more fantastical, you know. Up on the top where you have that text, it's also like a, a star exploding and you have all these uh, these bits and pieces kind of flying everywhere. The princess and the henchmen, instead of the lightning bolts, they get these circles around them, these white circle lines around them. So it's iconic. I would say it's iconic because I don't think I've seen something like this afterwards. Uh, I don't think too many tried to copy that design. Granted that this design seems to be taking from so much other material that already had existed in the past to kind of generate this. As usual, when I talk about something like Buck Rogers or Battlestar Galactica, the original ones I'm talking about here, it all has this Star Wars feel because, remember, these are the properties that other studios went with when they decided to go the Star Wars route. When everybody wanted their own Star Wars, this is the direction that at least, you know, Universal, not only with Battlestar, but now with Buck Rogers, they decided to go in that direction. The art, like I mentioned, is very good art. I love this art. Most of the characters are very dead on and how they're drawn. The artist's name is Victor Gadino. And I did a little research about him and he's done so much work. I mean, like a ridiculous amount of work, not only, you know, film posters, but Broadway plays, Brackford Exchange plates. Remember those, the Franklin Mint, stuff like that. He's done that kind of art. He's done a ton of romance novel covers. He's done commission work for Lucas. Clean Eastwood, Alan Alda, a ton of people also, you know, he's done exclusive work directly for them. A ton of advertising, Sony, American Express, Disney, Paramount, uh, Playboy, you name it. This guy has done just about everything. He's definitely one of these artists that doesn't just stick in one section of the advertising world. He hits everything. And definitely recommend you guys you know, look him up on his website and, and in different pictures you can find because he hits everything. Now, he does seem to have a specific style that I've noticed from some of the other pictures. He's very into the human form. He's done a lot of like um, nudes or semi-nudes where you study the muscles and the contour of the human body. And that also explains a lot of the uh, romance novels that he's done. You can tell it's those it's those stereotypical, super chiseled men with the women, you know, that that the romance novel cover type of deal. And it's really interesting because you can kind of say, well, here it works really well because the princess, she's always kind of like a sex pot, always hitting on, on him. And she is gorgeous i mean at least back then and it shows in the in the drawing that he made of her it captures her image perfectly the, her thug he's the muscle you know big muscle thug guy that's him right there in the middle where you have buck and wilma wilma is is pretty well drawn i mean the face th th that's one of the things about this is the faces are incredible it's just amazing how good he can get these faces she looks great her figure looks great and I think, you know, remembering back, it pretty much matches her figure. Buck, on the other hand, 
looks fantastic in the poster, but I don't remember him looking this good in the show. <laughs> if you guys remember, Gil Gerard at the time, you know, he was the star and he was the, the handsome leading man, but he had a bit of a of a William Shatner thing going on. And I'm not talking about just the personality. I'm talking about the physique. You know, William Shatner, you know, he did Trek for about three years. And, you know, he wasn't exactly the hunk that he portrays. Let's put it that way. The, the hunk that he would like to portray. So, he, you know, he was a little... A little, uh, little chubby here or there, you know. He, he they have to dress him a certain way. He, he wore the shirts a certain way. Make sure they're not too bunched up or too tight. If they're too tight. They don't look so good. They gotta loosen them up a little bit. So, I get that. Same thing with Gil Gerard and Buck Rogers. He wasn't exactly this this athletic, you know, perfection of an image of of what the handsome, young, strong, muscular. Uh, leading man would be he, he was close but he's not there well in the poster to me it looks as if they try to kind of make him a little more than that now part of it could have been the artist because like i said the artist does have a background in that kind of art he is very much into the human form and the kind of human form that he likes to draw are yeah these super beefy bulky you know, handsome guys you know again think romance novel covers that's that's it that was like his look so what I noticed here is that, and and don't get me wrong, in, in the show, he, they do dress him this way, but he has super tight pants, or uh, I don't know if you can call them leggings, but they were, they were very tight legging type of pants, and a very tight shirt. And through the shirt, you can kind of see what could almost be sort of a six-pack forming, you know, from the tightness of the shirt, but... In the show, that's that's not Buck. He, he didn't have that's not Gil Gerard. He didn't have that kind of body. But it's cool for the for the poster. You know, for the poster, it's cool because it's like, oh my god, wow, look at this. This is amazing. Look at this. But that is one of the one of the differences that I that I you immediately notice. Now keep in mind, this is the art that was used in a lot of not only the merchandising of the film, the promoting of the film, you name it. Uh, this is the preferred art that they used for a lot of things. However, there were other artists involved when it came to coming up with extra art in case it would be used somewhere else. Just like Star Wars, they also had for Buck Rogers like a, a fast food promotional poster giveaway type of deal done by other artists. They had uh, all kinds of other advertising related art that popped out and you know that kind of appears every now and then you're like what the hell is this for and then you realize oh it was one of those buy this get a free poster type of deal so you're going to find a lot of that not as crazy as star wars obviously there is one more poster that i noticed uh that i when i was doing all this research that came before this one there was actually a teaser poster and the teaser poster is more of the style of what I would consider to be the original look of what Buck Rogers would have been. And it's basically a completely black poster. Bottom quarter is all the credits. But instead of pictures of characters, it's a, a star field with the Earth and some planets and a huge rocket kind of flying towards you kind of slightly to the right top of the frame. And it says, the hero of tomorrow is here today. And the rocket looks more like a traditional, you know, 1940s, 1950s version of what a rocket ship would look like. And it, and it says Buck Rogers on the bottom of the rocket. Kind of cheesy, kind of too old-timey, 
you definitely don't get a feel of going from this particular art to the other art, completely different. Even in the show, the show, you know, his ship was basically a space shuttle that, that is found. This thing looks nothing like a space shuttle. It almost looks like a combination of a rocket ship and almost like a Star Trek, like an Enterprise kind of ship. It's a combination of two. Obviously, at the time, they probably, I assume, they just didn't have it. Uh, ready. The art wasn't ready, and the, the maybe even the models weren't ready at the time that this particular poster came out. But yeah, by the time you get to this, you are using clips. You know, the final product are definitely still shots. I imagine from the film, the TV show that were supplied to the to the artist, still shots or even clips of of, of the video itself of the film. Tweaky, what's a little odd about it also is that he has this gold hue on it. If I remember right. Regular Tweaky is kind of silverish, and then there was a girl Tweaky, I forget her name, it was ridiculous, but it was funny and it was cute, and she was, I think, kind of gold color, so that's really weird how they, they went with the with the gold shade on Tweaky on this poster, it's really odd. I mean, the, the poster overall has this very orange and yellow, kind of like flames of fire, kind of slight hue to it. Also, the picture of the of, of, of New Chicago, or I forget again, I, I don't remember what they, they, they call the, the, the good guy city, but it also has this, what appears to be a, a stairway that is like a rainbow color. And I do remember that the rainbow color is what they have in their armband, because that is part of the symbol of, of this New Earth government. But I, I don't remember exactly if there was an actual stairway made out of a rainbow color, like weird you know that that particular design who knows i don't know who the heck knows but this is a like i said it's a great poster it is so typical of the way the show was promoted of how we kind of looked at science fiction at that time granted yes it's really really difficult to compare something like this to star wars this was a television show the budget was way obviously much smaller well in reality it is probably much higher uh but in terms of for it being a weekly show, the quality of what you got wasn't Star Wars quality. They could match the effects a little tiny bit. You know, special effects, again, you're dealing in that post-Star Wars time where people are capitalizing on, on this new push in technology, you know, with optical printing and spaceships and matte paintings and this and that and the other. But yeah, this was kind of like the poor man Star Wars, just like Battlestar Galactica. And like I said before, I do remember seeing this particular specific art on a lot of like the action figures and the toys and, you know, all the ancillary merchandisable uh, materials having to do with this picture. My copy as usual or as, as lately usual is a print. It's an okay quality print. It's it's not bad. It, it did. It's funny because it did come a little wrinkled in the package that I got it and I was trying to get it exchanged for a better looking one. However... And this might happen sometimes when you guys buy prints. This particular print was made off of a poster that was folded. So in the print itself, you can see the fold marks from the original. So in a way, the fact that the poster is slightly in rough shape, it's a little wrinkled here or there. It's not a, it wasn't the perfect roll. I decided to keep it anyway because it kind of goes along with the look of the rough-looking paper, the rough poster... The fact that you have these folded marks that are fake, they're printed, and the fact that the poster is slightly wrinkled, it kind of becomes part of the look of the poster, of how it, it makes it look even more vintagey than than a, a, a nice brand new poster. The poster is labeled as one sheet style B, 
I'm not entirely sure what a style A would be. Maybe the style A would be that rocket ship one I mentioned before because it came first. That's a possibility. And, and the funny, uh, another interesting thing is that all the way on the top of the poster on the on the white strip, it says, when in Southern California, visit Universal Studios Tour, an MCA company. That's kind of cute that they're advertising uh, the studio tour for Universal in the movie poster. So there you have it. Those are today's posters of the month. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We started off with the making of the Planet of the Apes. Just a fantastic book, as I mentioned before. I cannot wait for more of these to come out. Alien will be my next one that I'm going to read. And then after that, it will be Aliens. I really hope he continues uh, to do these books. I hope he tries to hit some other classical films because this is just such a perfect format to be able to dive into the making of a certain movie and to be able to get so much material. You know, it is it is an encyclopedia pretty much of amount of information that you end up getting, you know, with these fantastic, you know, coffee-sized books. And then we jumped over to posters of the month, which we did Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom teaser poster, which is still a fantastic poster. I I can still remember it offered in the Star Wars fan club and then uh, seeing it at the movie theater and the Buck Rogers poster, which I never, I, I actually, you know, I really don't even remember if I saw it in the theater. I, there's a good chance I might have seen it in the theater. It's just hard to remember at this point. But I, I was more a fan of the show. The show, I really absolutely loved the show. I ate it up. It was like my first sci-fi color television show that I've seen uh, when I was about, good Lord, I must have been maybe around 10 years old. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's a fantastic poster. It's such a classic poster, such a, such a comic bookish rendition you know, uh, for, for, for Buck Rogers. And uh, it's one of those shows that still, every now and then, if it pops up, you just put it on for a good laugh. I'm not going to say it holds out very well, but I am still hoping that one day they will reboot this show in a modern format, maybe on a Netflix or something like that. But anyway, thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you soon here at Geek Fest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones are on location in San Francisco, Hong Kong, Macau, Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean, and in London filming the greatest adventure of all time, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Trust me. For the summer of 84, If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2020. <laughs>